Hey, guess what I'm thinking about? Um, what? Gourds. It's gourd season. Candy corn. You're thinking about candy corn. God, you guys aren't even in the ballpark. I'm thinking about Whoopi Goldberg. What? <laughs> that is that is random. Were you rewatching Sister Act? Which is, in my opinion, the greatest non-themed film of all time. Sister Act? What about what about Sound of Music? I'm glad you mentioned the Sound of Music. That's set in Nazi Austria. <laughs> okay. And I'm thinking about Goldberg because of the Nazis. What? Yeah. Okay. I think I know what you're referring to now. You're, what? Are you talking about Whoopi's comment on The View, which was like earlier this year? Yeah. Uh, well, do you not watch The View, Eric? Me? Yeah. I, Joe, I, I don't think I'm the target audience for The View. I, according to the hive mind of the internet, my marketing profile is somebody who looks at tools and cars. So not The View necessarily. Okay, okay, fine. The View is this talk show Okay. with Whoopi Goldberg as one of the hosts. And there was this episode earlier this year, I think it was actually like very, very end of December last year, oh, okay. where Goldberg insisted enthusiastically multiple times that the Holocaust was not about race. And this pissed some people off. What? I don't, what? That the Holocaust has nothing to do with race? Yeah. Exactly, Joe. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Now, you know that our very bright and enlightened listeners already know that the Holocaust, (laughs) yes, both of them, was a terrible (laughs) consequence of the eugenics movement Uh because all of them listened to our first episode on eugenics that we did, yeah, way back in January when we promised we'd do a whole series on this topic, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that means that you're about to launch us into another episode, right, Jim? Yeah, yeah. Hold on. Before you do, can we just make sure the record is clear that the Holocaust was very much about race? Can we actually agree on that? Yeah, yeah. I yeah, think so. I mean, yes, right? Jewish people were considered a separate and inferior race by the right. Nazis. And the Holocaust was about wiping them out so they wouldn't pollute the good genetic stock, supposedly, of the Aryan peoples. Okay. So yeah, I'd say that's about race. Yeah. And we'll get into Whoopi's, I think we should spend more time on Whoopi's comment later on. I will say listeners who have not heard that first episode Jim was just plugging, you might want to go back and check it out before continuing on with this one. So are we going to do this? Episode two? Let's uh, do it. Yeah, let's do it. I'm Jim. And I'm Eric. And I'm Joe. And this is Speaking of Race. Okay, then. So here we are in episode two, our long-awaited sequel to the start of our series on eugenics and race, which we began approximately nine months ago. Yeah. (laughs) Since it's been a while, do either of you want to take a stab at reminding our listeners what we covered in that very first episode? Uh, I'll work on it. We told the canonical story of eugenic, the type that we teach that begins with Francis Galton, Charles Darwin's cousin, who who coined the term in an 1883 publication. And then the story ends with the disaster of the Holocaust. And that sure sounds like we just covered the whole thing already, right? Yeah, more or less. Yeah, that's the story that gets typically taught or told if you happen to be in a classroom. That teaches about eugenics. Uh, yeah. Which I will say is pretty rare in the US anyway. Yeah. So many totally. people aren't even familiar with that story, but hopefully we like laid it out fairly well in that first episode. Mm-hmm. I think my, some of the recent research that I've been doing suggests that there is actually a whole lot more going on with eugenics prior to Francis Galton, like by decades, and especially in the US. So 
could we talk about that today? <laughs> yes. Like an alternative history of eugenics, kind of? Yes, one that wears flannels. Ooh, okay. <laughs> I like it. So let's begin at the beginning. What do we mean when we say eugenics? Usually people just refer to eugenics as the science and practice of promoting good breeding among humans, mm. which is how we also defined it in our first episode. It's literally what the word means, I think. Yeah. yeah. And, and that would be how I teach about it too, what I do. I think if you break it down, eugenics really has three key ingredients that are present all at the same time. It's not enough to just have two of these ingredients. You really need all three. And I think that's something that surprisingly we see in American history, long before Francis Galton reared his, his mutton chops. Three ingredients, like shortbread. Yeah. What? Whoa. Like okay. shortbread, you okay. know. It doesn't taste as good, though. Shortbread is made from three ingredients, and it's way tastier than eugenics. Okay. And, uncoincidentally, shortbread is white and flaky. Get it? Because they love whiteness and purity and That's, flaky? I don't, I don't like, me no likey. <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> fine. I, I love shortbread, but I anyway, do too. what are the three ingredients of eugenics, Eric? And is this like an Eric patented original idea or is this something <laughs> that other people are talking about? Too? Right. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I honestly don't know. Okay. But this is just stuff that I've seen crop up again and again in research that I've been doing lately. And well, maybe I'm giving away the punchline a little bit here, but I want to sort of do some foreshadowing that I think these three ingredients, not only do we see them in the American past before Francis Galton, but I think we're seeing them again now in the United States, which, you know, is scary and yeah. doesn't bode well for things like the future of racial equity in the United States. Yes, agreed. Yeah. But I, I mean, I like this idea that an alternative framing might help give us insight into what's going on today, because I really think most people, if they think about eugenics at all, think of it as this kind of odd relic from a time long past. Totally. So what's the first ingredient? Well, I think the first thing they have to talk about is this widespread fear of degeneration by which, I mean, sort of a, it was a, a population level panic about what the quote unquote undesirables will do to the quality of the population if they were allowed to interbreed with everybody else. And I just want to remind everybody, like we said in the first episode, who counts as an undesirable or unfit individual shifted a lot over the history of eugenics. That's a great point. Uh, sometimes it was people who were insane or had diseases or were developmentally disabled. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's ethnic or religious minorities. Including Jewish people, whoopee. Yeah, exactly. And at other times it might've been black or brown people or immigrants. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think that this is part of what leads to people having some confusion like yeah. what we did about yeah. like what eugenics is because throughout the history of eugenics, there is kind of this moving target and it's, it can be confusing to people like eugenics is not necessarily always clearly about race yeah. according to the racial categories that we use today in the United States. And I would say sometimes my students have struggled with that when I've tried to teach about this. What do you mean? Can you unpack that? What, what exactly do you mean? Like students will say that this doesn't look like racism to them if it's okay. not overt, bigoted, sort of like black versus white stuff, like what oh. they've learned about leading up to the civil rights movement in the U.S. Oh, so Whoopi. this is maybe, yeah, this must be what Whoopi means. 
Right, right. And what I try to emphasize is that eugenics is still about trying to make the best race more pure. And in most cases mm -hmm. throughout the history of eugenics, even though the, the target of the eugenic control is often moving, that best race is almost always defined as white and often specifically Aryan, Western European, you know. That's a fantastic point. And I mean, even the, the the word that the Nazis used to describe what they were doing was Rassen hygiene, race hygiene. Right. Yeah. And, and eugenics has always been about limiting, about limiting the people who are not the right kind. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're not the right kind of white, or maybe they're not the right kind of religion or whatever. Getting back to my point, though, it's this first ingredient for eugenics is this fear of the degenerates, of degeneration, of people who are unfit. Yeah. Right. So worries about this dominant population being diluted or sullied by minorities or maybe by newcomers. Yeah. Okay. So what's the second ingredient? Well, the second one, I mean, we, we talk about it all the time. It's this deep held belief in biological determinism. Our millions of listeners <laughs> would be familiar with that from our top five scientific racisms episode. And Eric pulled that biological determinism out as one of the top racisms. That's true. Oh, yeah. That biological determinism is a fancy way of saying that your biology dictates your destiny mm -hmm. and that people's superiority or inferiority is biologically and today we'd say genetically coded in such a way that it can't be changed. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens that I'm cooking up an episode about the biological determinism of the 60s that Eric brought Ooh. up for a future episode. Oh, good. I'm excited. Ooh, a teaser. Cool. Mm -hmm. If we're all piling on with the sides here, I'll add one. Which is... <laughs> oh, great. Now no one's going to follow this episode. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> which is that biological determinism is, of course, the key sort of a foundational idea of scientific racism. Mm. And I think what you're saying here, Eric, is that it's also a key foundational idea of eugenics. So yeah, yeah, yeah. there is this really common ideological connection between eugenics and racism, just in case we haven't yet convinced our listeners that we should be talking about eugenics on a podcast about race. I'm glad that you made that linkage, Joe. And I think we should definitely come back to it later. In the meantime, though, can I give the third ingredient? Yes, yes, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Even more off track. Okay, so the third ingredient this is really where the rubber hits the road. So these are actual practices that change reproduction to make sure that some people have more children and others have fewer children. So sterilization is the big one. What about like arranged or controlled marriage? Yeah, I, I guess I hadn't actually even thought about that. But yes, yes. And e even incarceration is a kind of changing reproduction. Because you're pulling a group of people out of the gene pool by sticking them in an institution, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, a mental asylum or even just prison. Yeah, I can see that. Okay. So to review, the definition of eugenics that we're working with here, this alternative definition is number one, fears of degeneration, plus number two, biological determinism, plus number three, actual practices that change the ratio of reproduction across a society. Right? We got that? I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking alternative Kurt Cobain. Anyway. Keep going. <laughs> um, okay. Okay. So I think that's cool and clear and remind us why this matters, why we're right. presenting this alternative. This significance question. Well, first, yeah. if you take those three things in combination, so if you stack those up with each other, it allows us to see that eugenics was older than just what the cousin of Charles Darwin, Sir Francis Galton was talking about. Right. So it okay. goes back further in time. And second, it allows us to see how the current moment 
which again, for many people might seem like it, we've moved light years away from this eugenics past is actually much closer than we might think. Okay. So if we kind of stick with the canonical story of eugenics, Galton to the Holocaust, we're missing yeah. part of the story. That's what you're saying. Exactly. A really and potentially part. a really important part with consequences for understanding what's going on right now. Yeah. I mean, not to keep repeating the issue, but it's worth emphasizing. Yes, exactly. Though I'll say, given the way this episode is going so far, I can tell we probably aren't going to get through very much of the story this time. Well, then we'll cover it. Let let me move us along then. Uh, After going through all of this uh, preamble about what we're going to talk about, we said earlier that these eugenic ingredients are showing up way before Galton in the late 19th century. Just just how early are we talking with this? Oh, I'd say all the way back to ancient civilizations in the Eastern Mediterranean. Whoa. Actually, probably much earlier since the Greeks didn't just spring out of nowhere. So I think one of the oldest really solid examples comes from these writings. And this comes from this poet whose name is Theognis. And he's on the scene sometime in the 6th century BCE. So a long Mm. time ago. Wow. Somebody else gets to read this quote, though. Not me. Uh, I'll do it. Okay, go. Okay, okay. So from the poetry of Theognis. Ready? Read it in Greek. I can't. I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, so he says, <clears throat> We seek out rams and asses and horses that are purebred, but a nobleman does not mind marrying the base daughter of a base father if the latter gives him a lot of money, and a woman does not refuse to be the wife of a base man who is rich. It is money people honor. Wealth has mixed up blood. And so, Polypides... Do not be surprised that the townsman's stock is becoming enfeebled since what is noble is mixing with what is base. Well, poop, would you look at that? <laughs> yeah. We've got yeah. all the, the fears of degeneration, the ideal of biological determinism in there. Mm-hmm. The only thing we're missing is that that crazy ingredient number three, the actual limiting of reproduction. Yeah, and it took about a century for that to work its way in. You mean wow. until the 19th century? Right? No, no, I literally mean it only took about 100 years for that next piece to work its way in, wow. in the 5th century BC. Okay, but probably like no one was really talking about it because I have not heard of it happening that early. Well, I mean, if if by no one, you mean the most widely cited ancient book. I mean, at least a book that's not a scripture of some kind. Um, what? Pla- Plato's Republic. Yeah, Joe, even I have a copy of that on a bookshelf in my house, and it's not even part of my Disney comics collection. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Plato, like as in Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. That exactly. Plato. Yeah, yeah. It's it's in the Republic. It's Thomas Jefferson's favorite book. It's wow. one of the most read books of all time. And Plato directly borrows from Theognis's poem that you just read. Okay. And we're going to have to read the Plato quote as a team because in true Platonic fashion, it's written as a dialogue between individuals. Oh, let me just get my Greek thespian costume. Hold on. Uh, no, no, no. Joe, this is a podcast. You don't right. need a costume. I don't even have my pants on. <laughs> oh, my God. TMI. Okay. All right, all right. Okay, so back to the point. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start reading Plato, and then, Joe, okay. I guess you get to jump in. I get to dialogue with you. I'm ready. Okay, so here's Plato. He says, and of course, he's speaking as if he's Socrates, but it's it's Plato. How can marriages be made most beneficial? That's how he starts. So that's a question which I put to you because I see in your house dogs for hunting and of the nobler sorts of birds, not a few. 
Now I beseech you, do tell me, have you ever attended to their pairing and breeding? And if care was not taken in the breeding, your dogs and birds would greatly deteriorate. Okay, here comes my part. <clears throat> Certainly. That was it, it, I guess. <laughs> That's it. No, go ahead. And the go same ahead. of horses and animals in general? <clears throat> Undoubtedly. <laughs> it's not much of a dialogue. <laughs> Good heavens, my dear friend, I said. What consummate skill will our rulers need if the same principle holds of the human species? Okay, and now we can skip ahead just a bit. Uh, okay, let me read this last part so I get to say something more than like... Certainly. Certainly. Okay, okay. go ahead. Okay. Here's yeah. the last part. <clears throat> the principle has been already laid down that the best of either sex should be united with the best as often and the inferior with the inferior as seldom as possible. And that they should rear the offspring of the one sort of union, but not the other, if the flock mm. is to be maintained in first rate condition. Now, these goings on must be a secret. What? Okay. Yeah. It must be a secret which the rulers only know, or there will be a further danger of our herd, as the guardians may be termed, breaking out into rebellion. Right. So right here in one wow. of the most widely read books of all time, Plato says that there should be marriage festivals, both to keep the city population stable and to make sure that only the best individuals are breeding. Hmm. But I'm even more interested in the fact that Plato thought that there should be special nurses for the children of the best parents. But, and I'll read this part, he says, quote, the offspring of the inferior or of the better when they are chanced to be deformed will be put away in some mysterious unknown place as they should be, end quote. Please. Uh -huh. Okay, so he's suggesting we basically allow these, quote, less desirable folks to wither away, but in secret. That is intense. And I would say what also jumps out to me, having not really read this before, is how Plato seems totally comfortable comparing human reproduction to animal husbandry, basically. Yeah, totally. That seems like kind of a common thread in the, I mean, I guess we're now saying centuries of eugenics, mm -hmm. including, I will say, right in 2020, as COVID was closing in on the world when... Uh. Our favorite resident asshat, Richard Dawkins, a British evolutionary biologist, wrote this tweet. Why don't you read it this time, Jim? All right, fine. But but it's got to be under protest. I have hated Dawkins since he piggybacked his uh, biological determinism on top of E.O. Wilson's sociobiology back in the 70s. Uh, read the tweet, Jim. All right, all right. Here's the tweet. It's one thing to deplore eugenics on ideological, political, moral grounds. It's quite another to conclude that it wouldn't work in practice. Of course it would work. Oh, it works for cows, horses, pigs, dogs, and roses. <laughs> why, why on earth wouldn't it work for humans? That was February 16th, 2020. Jeez, that is terrible. Bad timing to write that right before a pandemic. Really? Really, and and it's a Twitter hot take on eugenics for the twenty first century. Do we think that Dawkins is right? I mean, I feel like we're not ready to address that. We still need to no. connect more of the historical dots to the origins of modern eugenics. Like okay. back, let's go back to I don't know the nineteenth century, maybe. Yay, nineteenth century <laughs> history. Okay, when we're going back to the nineteenth century, I just want to remind our listeners again that that's a key time in the history of race science. Yeah, when folks that we've talked about here in the past, people like Arthur de Gobineau, who oh, earned yeah. the title of the father of racist ideology, were doing their thing. Yeah, 
uh, Gavineau, dear listeners, was the French guy who came up with the idea of the Aryan master race in the first place and wrote his book, Essay on the Inequality of Human Races, mm. which later became a favorite among Nazis. Yep. And he was talking explicitly about the destruction of humankind by interracial mating. It's a yeah. very eugenic -y kind of idea. Yeah, mm -hmm. very much so. So at the same time that Gabineau was writing in the 1840s and 1850s, and still a good two or three decades before Galton will use that term eugenics for the first time, there were these two American phrenologists <laughs> named Orson and Lorenzo Fowler. And they set up shop in New York City. And these guys are actually central to the origins of eugenics that we're trying to map out here. In case people don't remember, we did an episode on phrenology back at the end of 2019. Right. Thoughtheads. Yeah, that's the one, Joe. Yes. <laughs> in that episode, we discussed the now discredited science of looking at all those lumps and bumps and shapes of people's heads. Mm -hmm in order to tell about their personality and their potential. Yeah, and I would say we, we covered phrenology pretty well, but- It was very bumpy. Ha -ha. <laughs> but the thing you're bringing up, Eric, I think is that this modern eugenic story starts not in the UK or in England with like Galton and his British stuff, but in New York mm -hmm. with the Fowlers. Yeah. So what did these guys have to do with eugenics, especially eugenics and phrenology? Right. Well, these Fowler brothers were big proponents of biological determinism, and especially in their idea that traits could be read by the physical signatures on the body, which all phrenologists believe. And that's something that a lot of people are still in love with, like genetic ancestry storytellers and hereditarian psychologists. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. And these Fowler guys, they were, I mean, like, people listened to them? They were popular? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They were public intellectuals so prominent that they were followed by the likes of people who you've heard of. Walt Whitman, Edgar Allan Poe, Ralph Waldo Emerson, oh and a whole bunch of others. Okay, that's quite a following. Right. So you can imagine that when Lorenzo Fowler's principles of phrenology and physiology applied to man's social relations, Oy. that's the title of his book. It comes out in 1842. A lot of people read and paid attention to that book. Uh, unpack that title for us, Eric. I, I haven't <laughs> heard of that one. What is Right, mean? I know. We don't pay attention to the phrenologists anymore. No. So his principles of phrenology were basically about how individuals should be matched together for marriage based on their phrenological characteristics. What? I, wow. I know, right? Okay. Let me, let me just read a quote. Okay. okay, so hold on. Let me get out my old phrenology books. Okay, so <laughs> here he goes. Great pains are taken to improve our breeds of horses and sheep, oh. and we hold in high esteem breeders of excellent hogs or obedient dogs. Why do we deny humans should reproduce along equally thoughtful lines? Um, I feel like we just heard both Theognis and Dawkins again. Right. <laughs> now, what's interesting is that the other Fowler brother, Orson Fowler, who also designed the octagonal house, by the way, well, he, in 1848, he writes this book called Laws and Facts Applied to Human Improvement. Mm -hmm. And he actually, this book is fascinating. He sketches hundreds and hundreds of these anecdotes to make an argument that bad traits are physiologically passed down family to family and are able to be read in skulls. This sounds like standard phrenology stuff, though, Eric. You know, you're right, Jim. It is to that point. But... Both of the Fowler brothers advocated that medical authorities should use this phrenological knowledge to control marriage. They really did believe that the well-born should have more children 
the defective should be prevented from having children. Okay. So it's like ingredient number three, a mechanism, right? Yeah, and, absolutely. And let me guess, without this kind of control, it's like they're worried about the corruption and demise of humanity. Yeah. So the degeneration part is in there too. But with it, we could get rid of all the traits that are supposedly bad and we could perfect humans. Double yes, absolutely. Okay. That sounds a lot like Galton's eugenics to me, even even though it's coming before Galton. Right. I mean, in a way, it even goes farther than Galton because they're proposing this actual mechanism for diagnosing negative characteristics that should be subject to this kind of control with phrenology, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. So the important point to underline is that the Fowlers connected their science to, and I know we don't consider it science, but they did. <laughs> to a direct proposal for controlled reproduction, controlling other people's reproduction. Okay, so if I pull this apart, what you're saying is they had, the Fowlers had, all three ingredients on hand to bake the shortbread of eugenics, to continue my metaphor. Uh, right. <laughs> the fear of degeneration, number one, the biological determinism, number two, hell, even they even have the animal breeding analogy, which is not an ingredient, yeah. but everybody seems to be talking about it there. That's true. Um, and then number three, the, the mechanism, which I just mentioned for controlling it. And that was quite a while before Galton came on the scene. Absolutely, Joe. And, and those key eugenic ingredients were much more widespread in the middle of the 19th century in the United States than we usually recognize. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they're so widespread, in fact, that many educated white men subscribe to them, perhaps especially physicians. Ooh, is that a foreshadow? Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. And I get that. But <clears throat> let me just, on behalf of those who are still thinking like, what about the race part? What about race? When does this yeah. actually become about race? Because, yeah. you know, we sort of promised listeners we'd get there, but it really sounds like so far the pro-eugenic people like the Fowlers or even like Plato <laughs> were interested right. mostly in controlling people they viewed as defective and that those weren't specific racial groups, right? And I think we said sure. back in our first eugenics episode that this is going to culminate in 1927 with Oliver Wendell Holmes' Buck v. Bell pronouncement, which is that, right. that really famous case about... Three generations of imbeciles generations is enough. Imbeciles, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if it wasn't about race in the antebellum U.S., when, when would it be? Let me just jump in for a second here. Be before we get too far down this, this rabbit hole, I want to remind folks that when Galton coined the term eugenics, just like his cousin Charles Darwin had used the word race in the full title of On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation mm. of Favored Races the in favored the Str races. Yeah. Struggle yeah. for Life, yeah, yeah. Galton used that term also. And I want to collect my, quote, reading bonus pay for this episode. <laughs> so, so let me give the actual definition where Galton coins the terms. Okay. He says, we greatly want a brief word to express the science of improving stock, which is by no means confined to questions of judicious mating, but which, especially in the case of man, takes cognizance of all influences that tend, in however remote a degree, to give the more suitable races or strains of blood a better chance of prevailing speedily over the less suitable than they otherwise would have had. Okay, that's his footnote one in that 1883 volume. So don't forget to uh, check the yeah, footnotes. That's a good point. That is the actual footnote where he uses the word eugenics for the time. very yep. first time. Okay, wow. and races are in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's great. I'm glad that you found that. 
and I want to add just one more point to the timeline that I think it even predates that. So human race became important in pre-eugenics America about 30 years before Galton offers that definition in the works of one of these educated white men that I was just talking about a second ago, who was bitten by this eugenics bug. His name was Dr. Gideon Linsecum, and he was a Texas physician. Okay, as old as I am, I've never heard of him, Eric. <laughs> right. Okay, sure. No, I know he, would, he just wouldn't make it out of most people's radar screens. But I think, little aside, Lynn Seacom was a correspondent with Darwin about the behavior Charles of ants. 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 Right. Ants? Yeah, Texas <laughs> ants. And ant slavery, which Darwin used as an example in The Origin of Species. Okay. I am virtually scratching my head <laughs> right. because I, I'm failing how. To see how the ant thing has to do with eugenics, Eric, can you lead us down this rabbit trail? Ant trail. Ant, lead us no, down I, pro the I, promise, I promise it's relevant. I promise it's relevant. So Lincecum proposed a eugenics bill to the Texas House of Representatives in 1855. Wow. And guess how he proposed to do eugenics? Controlled marriage? Phrenology. No, both wrong. Castration. Oh. Right. Um, that's... Yeah. Uh, Extreme, I guess. So eugenic, what yeah. did he say? Are you sure well, it's eugenic? Me, I'm going to read straight from his 1855 bill. The text of the proposed law goes like this, quote, we all know that if one half of the pains were taken to improve the human race, that there is to improve a breed of sheep, the blood of horses, the stock of cattle. Again? <laughs> right? It's that same thing. Yeah. The same like, like livestock metaphor. Yeah. Over and over and over again. Yeah. Okay, so it goes on. So long as physical and moral deformity and disease are licensed to perpetuate themselves, the breed of ill-shaped will continue wow. to multiply so rapidly as to postpone intellectual progress. <laughs> and castration. Castration is the answer here. Right. Yes. Because it doesn't just stop deformities and hereditary diseases, but all sorts of social problems. Oh, really? For instance, yeah, he was actually incensed about dishonest politicians and other dishonest physicians. Don't you think, he asked, that society could greatly benefit itself in diminishing the possibility of these fellows to reproduce their kind by a free use of the knife on their genital apparatus? So we should castrate dishonest politicians. Oh, yeah, yeah right. I'm for it. Yes. I mean, okay, that sounds eugenic. And the race part, Eric? Okay, so Gunsikum thinks that his emasculation procedure, that's what he calls it, should first be applied to African Americans. Mm, there it is. Because castration would affect both future heredity, which is what we usually mean when we talk about eugenics, but it would also change behavior through social control in the present. So it was perfect on the Texas frontier with its social divisions between whites and Mexicans and natives and African-Americans, whether enslaved or free. It was yeah. a perfect procedure. He even thought it was a charitable humanitarian intervention. Wow. I know, right? Yeah. So, for instance, according to Lynn Seacombe's reporting, a friend of his used that, quote, convenient little instrument, the <laughs> knife, oh, to true. save the life of a black field hand who was accused of raping a white girl. Because the physician, quote, went into the field where he was at work and castrated oh him, God. unquote, the town didn't lynch the accused man. Wow. So afterwards, the 
supposedly the man's behavior changed. It made him caring and honest, blah, 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 blah. Uh, that's that's really thoughtful in a white supremacist sort of way. <laughs> right, right. But wait, there's more. <laughs> of course. But wait, there's more. So Gideon Lindsaycom also proposed castration as a cure for compulsive masturbation. Ah, oh, so this is where the masturbation comes Tim's in. He's been waiting for months. We we, for, we foreshadowed that back in January. Right. Yeah, and you just left us on the hook since then. And I'm gonna have to leave you on the hook a little bit longer. I think we should pause our history of pre-eugenics eugenics there and save it for next time. So, Joe, wrap us up. Well, wait, wait. We, how about the race issue that we had with Whoopi when we first started this episode? Um, yeah, actually, that would be a great way to wrap things up. So I forget which one of you, but one of you asked earlier what she actually said. I think it was you, Eric. Yeah, yeah. So a little context for what she was what they were talking about on this episode of The View. This whole discussion came about when they were talking about how a Tennessee public school board had banned the graphic novel Mouse by the Jewish American author Art Spiegelman. Either of you read it? Yeah, I love it. It's one of my favorite books. Actually, if I remember correctly, it's it's basically set up like a series of discussions that Art Spiegelman had with his father, who was a Polish-born Jew who actually survived the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And it's this like... God, it's just this heartbreaking story of what the Holocaust did to their family. It's it's horrible. There's it broke up their family. There's an aunt's suicide. There's the murder of his brother to avoid being captured by the Gestapo. His dad was working as a POW at Auschwitz Birkenau, and his mom eventually commits suicide. I mean, and this all this next generation trauma that this imposes on the author himself and his relationship with his father. Of course, the book won a Pulitzer Prize. I mean, it's an amazing, it's an amazing yeah. work. Both of mm. them. There's two parts. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And race does enter into the story explicitly in a couple ways. So one is it it shows mm-hmm. up pretty directly through the author Art's account of his own father's racist treatment of African Americans after they emigrate oh, to the yeah. US. So that's a great point. You know, he kind of depicts his father in the book as being kind of hypocritical or short-sighted for not seeing that there are parallels between his own treatment as a Jew during the Holocaust and the treatment of African Americans yeah. in the US. So that's one way. Yeah. I guess a probably a less obvious way that racism shows up is just through anti-Semitism, which is a key theme of Poland and Germany through, during, and after World War II. Right. And yeah, and I think that's where Whoopi Goldberg made her misstep. So on the show, it was, I looked it up, it was January 31st of last year. This is what okay. she said. Here's a quote. <clears throat> this is white people doing it to white people. So this, you know, uh, you all go and fight amongst yourselves. And then later she goes, let's be truthful about it because the Holocaust is not about race. It's not about race. It's not about race. It's about man's inhumanity to man. That's what it's about. Mm -hmm. And then Ana Navarro, who's one of the other hosts on the show, and she's a Latina activist, says, she's like, but wait, it's about white supremacy. And then Goldberg argues a point saying, quote, but these are two white groups of people. You're missing the point. Mm -hmm. The minute you turn it into race, it goes down this alley. Let's talk about it for what it is. It's how people treat each other. It's a problem. It doesn't matter if you're black or white because black, white, Jews, Italian, everybody eats each other. Huh. So, so it sounds like Goldberg is completely missing the crucial knowledge that Jewish people were racialized, that yeah. they might be accepted as white in a lot of cases now, but they've been treated as a different race for hundreds of years, and they often still are. 
And I'm sure it didn't help her case that this discussion happened uh, right as we've been seeing a major uptick in anti-Semitism in the U.S. as well. Yeah. That's why people were so critical. No one, no one thought Whoopi was saying like, oh, the Holocaust didn't exist or it wasn't a bad thing. Right. They were just really upset that she did not recognize that there was a racist thing going on here. yeah that's i think that's the point you were just making a second ago jim that goldberg's missing that jews are racialized yeah. and let's not forget i mean the the aim of the third reich's final solution was to exterminate jews to literally kill all of them yeah. so they could no longer reproduce and supposedly sully arianism right the yeah. german superior genetic stock so Although from Goldberg's perspective, this intra-European <laughs> racial cleansing looks like just two groups of white people going after each other. Nazis would never have claimed some sort of racial equivalency or commonality with their Jewish victims. That's what the entire Nuremberg Code is supposed to deduce. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this is not the only place in the world where we see this kind of particular racism. Like, I think you could say something similar about the Hutu and Tutsi conflicts that have been raging in Rwanda and Burundi for decades, yeah, you know, like exactly Hutu and Tutsi are both generally darker skin and might be assumed to be African or African-American if you saw them walking down a street in the United States, but they view themselves as categorically different. And there have been mm. millions of lives really brutally lost mm. over that difference. And let's not forget also that Rwanda and Burundi are former Belgian and German colonies. So it's oh, that yeah. same kind of enlightened enlightenment European racial logic at work with the same genocidal tragic consequences as the Holocaust. Well, yeah. Yeah. Let's button it up. That is how eugenics is about race, right? Even yeah. in cases where yeah. two groups might have similar skin tones. Yeah. Man, good job. Full circle. Yeah. All right, Joe, are we done? I, I think so. Let's review class. Okay. <laughs> hey, this this episode has gone a little bit all over the place, but hopefully we can yeah. remind everyone how it all hangs together. So we began with the notion that eugenics starts in the late 19th century with Francis Galton, who coined the term, which is sort of the accepted story, right? But really, it turns out, as we've been tracing through this episode, those ingredients of eugenics were already in place long before Galton even coined the term, right? People have blind spots when it comes to understanding how eugenics ties to race, even Whoopi Goldberg. Right. But hopefully we also demonstrated the connections there today. And that's something we'll continue to look at in future episodes. Right. Good. Right. Yeah. And one more thing, don't forget, this whole conversation matters both for a more accurate understanding of how eugenics and its horrible consequences like the Holocaust came to be. And you already said, Eric, also for predicting how it might again come to be, or mm. at least for helping us better understand what's going on today. Yeah. And on that uplifting note, <laughs> right. remember to stay tuned for masturbation and castration. <laughs> Oh, great. I'm Jim, the non-eugenicist physical anthropologist. I'm Eric, the definitely non-eugenicist historian of science. And I'm Joe. I'm, I'm not even going to say that. <laughs> I hope the cultural anthropologist. And you've been listening to Speaking of Race. Find us on Facebook at SOR Podcast, on Twitter and Instagram at Speaking of Race, and wherever you download, you'll find podcasts. <laughs>